Mark chapter number 4. And uh, I want to encourage you tonight through the Word of God and encourage you in the Lord. And uh, that's, that's not, I'll be honest with you, it's not always the aim of a sermon. Sometimes the aim of it is to educate. Sometimes the aim of it is to convict. And I believe sometimes uh, our aim for it don't make all that much difference anyway. The Lord does with it what He wants. But tonight, uh, I, I want to encourage you through the Word of God. There's something that I discovered while studying this that blessed me and encouraged me. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm, you know, I'm a little thick sometimes. And uh, I mean, not just in the midsection, but the head. And, uh, you know, there's, this might have occurred to you. It had never occurred to me. And so I hope that tonight we can look at the Word of God and gain some encouragement from what the Word of God says here. Let's look down at verse number 35, and then we'll read to the end of the chapter. The Word of God says this, And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Look at verse 37 once again. The Bible says, There arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be in your house and to preach your word. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather with the redeemed of God, to hear your word and to sing your songs and to be blessed with your presence. Now, I pray, Father, that we would be yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit tonight as he takes your word, his sword, and does in us that which is most needful to bring you the most glory. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've read in Mark chapter number 4, most folks knew immediately when we started reading what uh, story, what narrative from the life of Christ we were reading. In fact, most of you may have known uh, that there was a good chance when we turned to chapter number 4 of the book of Mark that we were going to be preaching tonight on the calming of the storm uh, on the Sea of Galilee. But I find something that was lost on the disciples, that's often lost on us, and I want to bring it to our attention tonight, and I want to preach to you for a few minutes on this thought. Now, let me begin by asking you a question. If I was to ask you what miracle was performed in the verses that we've read, what miracle would you say had taken place? Somebody tell me, what miracle would you say? Calmed the sea. Most of us, as we look at this passage, and even Mr. Schofield, and Mr. Schofield sometimes was uh, more wrong than he was right, <laughs> but as we look even in, in, in his Bible, I say that simply because that's the Bible I'm happening to, pre happening to preach out of tonight, I find that even he has given the heading to this story, that Jesus stills the storm. Most folks, when they read this passage, they say, what a miraculous thing that Jesus calmed 
the sea. Let me say that there's no question that it was a miracle that Jesus calmed the sea. Could you imagine what it would have been like to have been on that little boat and to have seen when the Son of God, the very Creator, reached out that hand out of which those very waters had been meted out and measured and sent out to the earth and spoke and calmed the raging storm. This arrested the attention of the disciples that were there. In fact, they say this in verse 41, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You've heard probably a hundred sermons uh, on the preaching of Christ calming the storm, and at least 40 of them probably you've heard me preach. But tonight I don't want us to preach on Christ calming the storm, because I find a miracle in these passages that is lost on the average Bible reader. In fact, when I read this passage, I don't see just one miracle, but I see two miracles. There is one miracle that grips and arrests the attention, and it's the calming of the sea. But I want you to look at verse number 37 and read it more carefully. The Word of God says, "...and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship." Notice this next phrase, "...so that it was now full." Have you ever noticed that before Christ ever calmed the sea, He undergirded the ship? In fact, He says to the disciples, He asks them this question, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Evidently, the purpose of the miracle was different from many of the miracles that Christ performed. In fact, I don't know very many instances where Christ performs a miracle and then upbraids someone for the circumstances in which that miracle was performed. Very often He speaks with compassion. Very often He looks at them with a tender heart. But in this instance, after Christ calms the sea, He begins to upbraid the disciples and say, Where was your faith? Could it be that the reason for that is because a miracle took place that was completely lost on them? Could it be that Christ's intention initially... And let me, let me qualify that statement. I'm aware we have an omniscient God, aren't you? I'm aware He's omniscient. I know that He knows the, the end from the beginning, the beginning from the... I, I'm aware of that. I, I'm aware that He's completely sovereign. I, I, it occurs to me that nothing ever occurred to Him. I, I know that. I'm aware of that. But there's no question that there are a few times in the Bible where the will of God is for something to take place and something else takes place. doesn't mean that God's out of control, but it means that He allows that which He would uh, wish to happen uh, to be overridden that something greater might take place. And could it be that Christ's intention, His desire initially, was never to calm the sea, but rather to sustain the ship in the midst of the storm? Now, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, a, a sailor. I, I've never been on a sailboat in my life. I, 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 don't, I, I'm not a, I, I don't have sea legs, as they would say. But there is one simple fact that I, that I do know pretty well, and that fact is this, that boats that are full of water, they don't stay upright. In fact, there's not a lot of things that's really required for a boat to sink, but one of the things that is required is that there has to be more water above it than there is below it. And the Bible tells us in this passage that they were at a place where the boat was full. Now, either you believe your Bible or you don't believe your Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that there was a little bit of water. It doesn't mean there was an inch or two of water. It doesn't mean it was ankle deep. But it literally means that they arrived at a place where the ship was full of water and it was a miraculous thing that the ship was staying afloat. And in this passage, 
I, I sort of see a picture of my life and yours. You see, the reason that, that Christ upbraided them was not because that they cried unto Him and He calmed the sea, but the reason He upbraided them is that they were never going to sink in the first place. Now, I'm, I promise you my intention isn't to fuss at you tonight. It's to encourage you. But can I say this, that oftentimes we pray about things that God isn't going to let happen in the first place anyway. Oftentimes there's things God's already settled and said that we occupy the prayer closet with when there's no need to pray over it because God's already commanded some things about it. I want to preach to you tonight for a few moments on this thought, the unsinkable ship. When I see this passage and when I see the ship that they're sailing in, I find three basic reasons that this ship could never sink. You remember what was said about the Titanic, don't you? Most people do. Uh, they uh, really uh, publicized and uh, uh, propagandized, if that's a word, I'm going to make it a word. It's funny how the pulpit works. You can just make up words. It don't matter. Only people understand what you mean. That's all that matters. But uh, they publicized pretty wide that the Titanic was a ship that could not sink. In fact, one of her engineers was quoted as saying this, that God himself could not sink this ship. And, you know, God has a sense of humor. Anybody that don't think God has a sense of humor, just look at history sometime. God has a pretty clear sense of irony. God has a pretty clear understanding of poetic justice. But here in this passage, we see a ship that God himself could have sunk it if he wanted to. But because it was the will of God that that ship not sink, there was no way it was going to sink. And let me say that there are a lot of things that can befall us in our life. But there's a few things that we know can never happen to us. Can I give you a few of them? One of the things that can never happen to us is that God will never turn His back on us. Never. He's promised us that He'd never leave us nor forsake us. Now, that's not something you have to pray about. That's a promise of God. Can I give you another one? Once we're saved, we can never lose our salvation. That's a promise of God. The Bible says about, uh, about you and I that no man shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. Now, that's a promise of God. We either believe that or we don't believe that. Whether we believe it or not has no bearing on the reality of it. Can, can I just... And I was thinking about this as we were singing, "'Tis so sweet.'" You know, it says in that song, "'How I proved him.'" You know what the Bible says about, about uh, Sarah? And we've talked about it a lot lately. And I don't know why, but it's just it's stuck in my mind. You know, a lot of times when the Holy Ghost says something to you, it sticks in your mind. It won't go away. And I thought over and over and over and over again about what the Bible says about Sarah in Hebrews chapter 11, where the Bible says that she counted him faithful. In other words, when she did the math, she figured up that God kept His promises. And let me say that God's faithful even when I'm faithless. I, I'm not saved because my faith is so strong. I'm, faith, I, I'm saved because my Savior is so strong. I'm not saved because I made a bunch of promises. I'm saved because He made a bunch of promises. I'm saved not because of who I am, but because of who He is and what He said to me. You don't ever have to pray about that. That's a promise of God. And so in this passage, I want you to notice three reasons, and I hope this will encourage you not, because we all get in storms. I don't care who you are, we all go through difficult times, every single one of us. Uh, you may not be in a difficult time today, but it may be that uh, after you pillow your head tonight, when you wake up tomorrow, you are in the middle of a difficult time. And storms have a funny way of assaulting our mind. And so I want to give you three truths tonight, and I want you to notice them with me. Let me say, first off, that this ship was unsinkable because the command was too powerful. 
Look what it says in verse 35. The Bible says, In the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them... Now, how many of you have a red-letter Bible? Now, these next few words, are they in black ink or are they in red ink? He said unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. There we have a revelation of the will of God for their life, at least for the next few hours or for the next day or so. That command of God was more powerful than all of the armies of Satan combined. That command, that word from God was more powerful than even their own weakness. That word from God, that command from God was more powerful than all the storms in all the oceans over all the face of the earth combined, for it was the word of the Creator, the mandate of God, the dictate of a sovereign, almighty Lord, and He said, let us pass over unto the other side. We see in this a divine purpose. He didn't say, let us try to pass over. He didn't say, let us see if we can pass over. He didn't say, let us get in the boat and find out where it takes us. He said, let us pass over unto the other side. It was settled eternally and divinely that they were going to make it to the other side of that sea. Let me say that I'm thankful that when God saved me, He predestined me to some things. Makes folks nervous when you talk about predestination because everybody thinks you're Calvinist. I don't believe anybody's predestined to heaven, and I don't believe that anybody's predestined to hell. And you can't find any passage in your Bible that teaches or tells me otherwise. But I do believe this that as many has, have believed on Him, that they are predestined to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. I believe that that my destination is settled because of Calvary. I believe that with my whole heart. I believe uh, that, that it's not a matter of me holding out or holding on. It was settled the day that I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. One of the verses that a lot of folks try to uh, to point to whenever they, they try to, to say that we really got to hold out and hold on, so, is they talk about what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. Do you remember what Paul said? Paul said, now therefore, uh, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward unto those things which are before, he said, I, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. People say, see there, there's a verse where we have to press forward. But now, wait a minute, what did Paul say? He said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended, not that I have already attained, but I follow after. Paul said, not that I have already attained, but I follow after. Now, what did he mean when he said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended? Well, he goes on to talk about how that he might be found in him, not having his own righteousness, uh, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He talked about how he wanted to know God and know the power of His resurrection and be made conformable unto His death and know the fellowship of His sufferings. What Paul was saying is this. If you look at the grand context of uh, of Philippians chapter 3, but of the entire book of Philippians, the grand context of it is this, is that God is one day going to make every one of those that have been born again exactly like Jesus Christ. 
But we're not to wait until then to, to, to try to start becoming like Jesus Christ. You know, it's in Philippians, uh, I believe it's chapter number 4, where Paul said that one of these days this vile body shall be made what? Like unto His glorious body. There's coming a day I'm going to be just like Him. It's settled. It's settled. The Bible says in John chapter 10 that my sheep hear my voice and uh, follow me and I know them. He does know us. If you're born again, there may be times you feel like you don't know Him all that well, but He always knows you. And we see that there was a divine purpose. Then I want you to notice number two, there was a divine path. They knew that not only were they headed to the right place, but they were going about it the right way because they were following the command and mandate of the Messiah. Look what he says, let us pass over unto the other side. He didn't say, let us go around to the other side. Uh, side. He didn't say, let us go underneath to the other side. There wasn't a bridge across it. So if they were going to pass over, there was only one way to do it, and that was to get in a boat. And so they knew that they were in the very heart and center of the will of God when they climbed into that ship. Let me say this, that when we're in the will of God, nothing can sink us. When we're... I know, buddy. Uh Uh-oh. I don't think they got that either. When we're in the will of God, nothing can sink us. When we're in the heart and center of the will of God, listen to me, I'd rather be in the heart and center of the will of God if it was in the darkest and uh, most dangerous and most vicious storm that mankind has ever known than be resting at ease and leisure in the places that men would long to be and be out of the will of God. They were in a safe place. Why were they in a safe place? Because they were where God wanted them to be. You say, preacher, how can I guarantee uh, that my life is going to be pleasing to God and going to be what I need? The way that you guarantee that is you know, Number one, get in the revealed will of God. If the Bible says it, listen now, this is deep. If the Bible says it, do it. Do it. It's that simple. If the Bible says it, do it. You know, most of us, we pray about the unrevealed will of God when we're not obeying the revealed will of God. We're trying to find out details about something that's going to happen three weeks down the road and we're not in church faithful. That's foolishness. If we're not in the revealed will of God, don't bother trying to seek after the unrevealed will of God. Uh, We're seeking God about things and wanting to know His mind about something. We've not read our Bible in two weeks. We've not been in the prayer cause in a month. That's foolishness. Whatever God says, do it. It'd do us well to take the advice that Mary, the mother of Christ, gave to those servants there at the wedding feast in Cain of Galilee. She looked at Him. Now, again, this is deep. I mean, get your theological thinking hat on. And you know what she said? She looked at him and she said, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. You know why we struggle with that? Because it's a struggle of the will. It's a power struggle. We don't want to surrender our will to his will. And then number two, I would say this. Seek the unrevealed will of God. We preached, I think it was actually last Wednesday night. I, I don't know, people sometimes will ask me about something that I preach uh, on Sunday. They'll say, now you said something, and I'll stop and say, now wait a minute, I don't even remember what I preached on on Sunday, okay? That's why we record it. You need to get a recording, because I don't have a clue what I said on Sunday uh, by the time we get about two days out from it. But I believe it was on Wednesday that we preached on Proverbs chapter 3 and, and, and discovering God's direction. You know what God says. You know what the prescription is to find out the mind of God about something. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. That means don't recline in your own... Don't assume you know best. 
You know, we have a bad habit of just assuming we know best. And if God don't come in and run smack dab into us like a wrecking ball, we just go on and do it our way without ever seeking the will of God. And then it says this. It says, uh, in all thy ways acknowledge Him. You know what that means? That means get to know Him about everything that, you're, that you have. Get to know Him about it. That word acknowledge is used all through the Bible. But you know, most of the time when it's used, it's used oftentimes of the marriage bed. When it says that one person knew another person, or the, when the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived and bare a son. That means this, uh, we don't just need to assume the mind of God on something if He hadn't revealed it either through His Word or in our lives. We need to get to know God about a matter. We need to get intimate with God concerning the issues of our life. And He says what? He shall direct thy path. You notice it doesn't say He'll let you in on the plan. It says He shall direct thy paths. You know, sometimes it's not a matter of figuring God out. Sometimes it's just a matter of getting close to Him and then trusting Him to lead you and direct you. We see that there was a divine... uh, I don't remember what I said. It rhymed. It started with a P. There was a divine path. Then I want you to notice a third thing here. We see there was a divine presence. He said, what? Let us go over. He didn't say, all right, now you all go over. Now, there were times he did. And let me say this, that they were just as secure the times that he said, you all go over, as the times that he said, let us pass over. But there is something sweet to understand this, that that ship was not going to sink because Jesus was on board. That brings me to my second point. Let me say that, number one, the command was too powerful. But let me say, number two, the cargo was too precious. That that boat wasn't going to sink because of what was on board and what was around it. Let me say, first off, because the Savior was on board. Oh, it'd do us well to understand again, to revisit that old doctrine of justification. Justification is a means whereby when we got saved, we got placed inside Jesus Christ. That's another reason I believe that my salvation is secure, because I'm hid with God. My life is hid with God and with Christ. Colossians says that, that our life is hid. I, I, I know I'm misquoting it, but listen, friend, I'm getting the gist of it, and it's good. Our life is hid with Christ in God. We're to seek those things above, set our affection on heavenly things, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, because we're dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. When you got saved, you got placed in Christ. Pity man be in Christ. And you got placed in Christ. Therefore, you're not going to sink because He's not going to sink. Now, there's times we mess up. I'm not denying that. There's times we get out of the will of God. I'm aware of that. There's times, and you see this in the life of the Savior. You you know when Mary and Joseph got in trouble? You know only one time in your Bible, uh, not just one time in your Bible, only one time in the Bible, uh, only one time in the Bible does it say this, does anyone call Joseph Jesus' father? Only one time. And it was Mary that spoke it. Now, Mary knew, Mary knew better than anyone that Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. And Jesus sort of corrected her in a loving way when He said, How is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? That was His way of saying, Whoa, wait a minute. You said that He's my father. He's not my father. He may be my stepfather. Hey, I may be entrusted to Him that He might look out for me and watch over me as a child. But wait a minute, Mama. Let's not get it mixed up here. He's not my father. I've got a heavenly father. And I'm about His business. And you know when it was she said that? She had spent about three days out of his presence. The Bible says that he had stayed back, and they went on, and they wished not that he was not in the company. 
I'm not saying we can't get out of the will of God. But I am saying this, that even when we get out of the will of God, that doesn't mean we get outside the promises of God. And he'll never leave. That ship was never going to sink because Jesus was on board. Let me say number two, not just because the Savior was on board, but because the saints were on board. I like what the Bible says about the church. And in the book of 1 Thessalonians, it says that you and I were not... I don't even need it anyway. You and I were not appointed under wrath. Well, the Bible says about those that have, that have been saved, those that have been redeemed. We're not, and that's talking about the great tribulation period. Uh, you, can't, you can't make that mean anything other than the great tribulation period because the entire chapter is about the great tribulation period. And it says, you and I, we are not appointed under wrath. Do you realize what a blessed thing it is to be a member of the church? I didn't say a member of this church. I said a member of the church. What a blessed thing it is to be a member of the church. Do you understand how much God loves the church? The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. He died for the church. It's a precious thing to be accepted in the Beloved. It's a sweet and beautiful truth that you and I are in this common fellowship of the redeemed, those that have been born again and washed in the blood of Christ. And let me tell you something. We may take it lightly sometimes, but God doesn't ever take it lightly. It it means something to be a child of God. It doesn't matter how wicked this world gets. It still means something to be a child of God. It doesn't matter how much the church compromises in these apostate days we live in. It still means something to be a child of God. And we may treat it lightly, but God doesn't treat it lightly. If God loved you enough to save you, then you better believe it, honey. He's not going to sink you in the midst of the storm. He loves you enough to keep you afloat. He loves you enough to keep you afloat. The saints were on board. But let me say number three, I think that boat was never going to sink because of the spectators that were around. It's interesting the way the Bible goes out of its way to say this. There were other little ships. You find this truth all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament. You know that that the children of Israel, they'd mess up. And, and, And you remember Moses says this a lot. Moses and God had an interesting relationship. The Bible says that God spoke to Moses in a way that he didn't speak to anyone else. That other people he spoke through dreams and visions, but Moses, he spoke face to face. And I get tickled sometimes seeing the, the, the relationship that Moses and God had and the conversations they had. Because I'll be honest, and I don't think there's a tinge of irreverence anywhere in it, but, but sometimes it's a very casual thing. And, and one second, you'd be reading, and, and God would say, Now, Moses, I'm sick of them. I'm going to smite them. I'm going to do away with them. We'll start all over with just you. Get out of the way. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses would say, God, now you can't do that. You can't do it. And then you'd turn a few chapters over, and Moses would be saying, God, I'm sick of them. I'm sick of them. I'm over it. You gave them quail, they want fried chicken. You gave them manna, they want cornbread. You gave them water from the rock. They want sweet tea. And after all that, they had nerve enough uh, to look at me and say, Moses, you take too much on yourself. Well, no kidding. Duh, I take too much on myself. I'm out here trying to provide for over a million people in the middle of a desert. And all they can do is gripe and whine and moan and complain. No, duh, I've got too much on me. God, just destroy them. Just do away with them. God say, no, Moses, you know I can't do that. And you know oftentimes what Moses would say to God? Moses would say, God, now you've got to remember, this paraphrasing, don't look, that you ain't going to find this in your concordance, but the truth is that Moses would say, God, now you've got to remember, there's nations around here that don't know you. 
You've brought these people out of Egypt by your high and holy hand. By the covenant blood of the uh, slain lamb, you've brought these people out. You've made promises to them, God. And these nations, if you destroy them, they're going to exalt themselves against you. And they're going to blaspheme you. Let me say that we need to remember that lost folks are watching us. And that doesn't mean God sometimes won't allow punishment and chastisement in our life. I'm not implying that, but I'm merely saying this. God's made some promises to you and I, and He's aware of who's paying attention. He knows, He knows that as long as you're in the world, you're the light of the world. He's aware of that. But let me say also, there's other Christians around. Not, not only the heathen, but the Christians are around. And they're watching too, and they need encouragement. So I think because this cargo was too precious. This ship was never going to sink. But let me, let me just give you one last one. I'd say because the cries were too passionate, this ship was never going to sink. Now, let me try to explain something to you that I think will help you in understanding the Word of God and understanding prayer. It's interesting to me that that ship was never going to sink. Never. Isn't that right? If you don't get that, you've been asleep. It was never going to sink. And yet... God understood that He'd wind up calming that sea that day. Now, God got glory out of calming the sea. Christ got glory out of calming the sea. Now, let me ask you this. What would have happened if they had never cried? Would He have still woken up? Would He have still calmed the sea? If we're going to play a what-if theology, I'd say probably not. And yet God was aware of what was going to happen. Here's what I want you to gather and to understand Christ had a desire for the boat to never sink. But he also understood that he'd wind up calming the sea. And the way that those two chains link one to another is through the means of prayer. I've heard it said this way, and I I think this is a pretty good way to say it. God's a sovereign God, but prayer is the means of God's sovereignty. You know, people ask sometimes, does prayer change things? Well, it does to us. Nothing ever changes for God. God is God. He's always been God. He'll always be God. God doesn't have a divine remote control that He fast-forwards or rewinds. God's outside of time, and He inhabits eternity. And as such, He's not waiting to see how it's going to turn out and then decides whether He wants to change it. He's already at the end, whatever it's going to be. So nothing ever changes for God. God's God. But it does change for us. God's a sovereign God, and yet He's ordained and mandated prayer as the means of His effectual working in human affairs. So prayer is the means of God's sovereignty. Does that mean that prayer is an ineffectual thing? No, because the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's no question prayer changes things. It may not change things in God's mind or in His perspective, but it absolutely changes things in our realm. And you say, Preacher, why did you say all that? I said all that to say this. Just because the boat can't sink, that doesn't mean that we ought not pray. Just because the boat can't sink, that doesn't mean there's no place for prayer. Because we see three things about their, their cries. And I believe this. I believe God hears and answers prayer, don't you? 
The things I just told you, that'll unlock some things concerning some parables that Christ... You remember the parable that Christ told about the man that's in bed and he doesn't want to rise up, but the neighbor comes and knocks on the door and he stays in bed and ignores his neighbor, and then the neighbor, just he just keeps on a-knocking and keeps a-knocking and keeps a-knocking, and finally the fellow gets up out of bed and says, all right, I don't want to come here, I don't want to do this, I didn't want to open the door, but if you're going to keep a-knocking, then I guess I'll answer. It's not saying God doesn't want to answer when we knock. But it's saying this, that sometimes the greatest change that prayer makes is not in that which it changes around us, but that which it changes within us. And sometimes the reason we need to knock is not because God can't hear, but because we need to knock. Something within us. And so that'll understand. Let me give you three things about this prayer. Let me say, first off, it was a waking prayer. It was a waking prayer. The Bible says he was asleep and it awoke him. He didn't wake up because he had to wake up. Because God doesn't really do anything because he has to do it because God's God. He didn't wake up because it was just time to wake up. He didn't wake up because they were in danger. He woke up because they cried, Master, awake. Prayer initiates things. Let me say that again, because I think you were expecting more, but if you'll really soak that in, that'll tell you something. Prayer initiates things. It matters whether we pray or not. Now, stop and think about the dynamic of a sleeping God. Did He, did he cease to be God when He was asleep? Let me say that the, the great truth here is not as much that He was sleeping, but that He was silent. For He was still God. The Bible says that God never sleeps. Isn't that what the psalmist says? Never sleeps, never slumbers. And so what does that tell you? That tells you this, that though He was not asleep in His deity, He was asleep in His humanity. And that though He was not asleep up there, He seemed to the disciples like He was asleep down here. And you know what happened? Prayer changed that situation. You know, sometimes it's not that God don't hear us that bothers us. It's that we don't, He don't answer us the way that we want Him to. Because we have a promise of God that He'll hear us. What we want is not as much for God to hear us, it's that we want Him to answer us. And you know, oftentimes even the silence of God is an answer. So it's not a problem with God answering us, it's that we want God to answer us in the way that we want Him to answer us. We see that prayer awoke him. It was a waking prayer. But let me say, too, it was a worshipful prayer. They said, Lord, Master. And in Luke's account, they say, Master, Master. It was persistent. They came and they didn't say, all right, get up and do something. But they approached him in reverence and said, Lord. I I, I believe that the prayer room is a place for exhaustion, but it's not a place for irreverence. We all get exhausted. We all get tired. There's times that I'm glad God understands my heart because my lips are not very reverent. But the prayer room and the prayer closet and the throne room of God is never a place for irreverence of the heart. When they came to Him, they came to Him recognizing Him as who He was. Isn't it interesting what it says? I preached on this before at the beginning of the passage. The Bible says they took Him as He was in the ship. 
Now, I know what that means. I'm aware. I, I, I interpret the Bible literally. I'm not doing damage to Scripture. But I believe there's a truth there we can gain. They took him just exactly like he was. They didn't put a bunch of contingencies on their, their walk with him. They said, Lord, however you are, that's how we want you. And it'd do us some good if we grow real comfortable with God being God, however he wants to be God. And then notice number three, and I'm done. We see that it was a wondering prayer. What'd they say? Carest thou not that we perish? They asked a question. They asked a question. I believe the prayer closet is a place for questions. I believe anybody that tells you the prayer closet isn't a place for questions don't have a prayer closet. Anybody that really prays and knows God, they're going to ask questions sometimes. Anybody that's honest is going to ask questions. G. Campbell Morgan said this, that, that a man of faith is a man of problems. You know what he means by that? That whitewashed optimism does not satisfy him. That, that what I like to call, I don't know if anybody else uses this term, but I use this terminology, cross-stitch answers. The kind of things that, that sound good to ears, but they don't feed the soul. They don't satisfy a person of faith. They need something more substantial than that. They need, they need to understand something about their situation. And so it wasn't wrong that they asked questions. They came and they said, Lord, carest thou not? I think they knew the answer. But I don't think that the question, carest thou not, is really the question they were asking. They weren't saying, Lord, do you care? They were saying, Lord, if you do care, then why? Why is my situation thus? I'll say this, that in some ways, and I, I don't know the intent of this, but I'm trying to mind the Lord. In some ways, they missed the greater miracle. It wasn't wrong for him to pray. It wasn't wrong for him to seek God. It wasn't wrong for him to try to figure out why. But they wound up praying about some things that were already settled. God got glory out of it, and he did calm the storm and calm the sea. You know that there's another time in another situation where God calms the storm, and He had just fed the 5,000. The Bible says that they, they understood not the miracle of the loaves. They understood not. God was trying to get them to understand He was in control of some things. There was an answer for them if they were willing to accept the answer. And that was that sometimes the storm rages, but the Lord still sits in the boat with us. I want to encourage you tonight in saying this. There are some things about your life that are settled if you're a child of God. They're settled. You have a predetermined end to your life. You may not know how you'll exit this world, but you know the world that you'll go into next. And it's settled. You don't have to pray and ask God not to leave you. Because He won't leave you nor forsake you. There are some things that are settled in your life. You say, preacher, what, I can, what can I do? Well, you can pray like the man did that approached Christ asking for help for his child when he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And you can say, Lord, I don't know where my faith has been, but I know where I want it to be and in whom I want to place it. God, give me strength to face the storm that I am and to see your presence walking with me day by day.